Uh, it's actually started at the beginning of summer. We didn't, we didn't get to highlight them up front, but one I, we, we definitely celebrated was uh, called Denver Project. Uh, Julie Schmitz was a volunteer from our congregation who led a group of about 15 students, along with a couple of our student ministry interns, James Long and Emily Boyd, uh, led a group of 15 or so students, middle schoolers and high schoolers, downtown to work with Open Door Ministries. They had the opportunity to... Uh, uh, to be really you know, practically the hands and feet of Jesus to homeless people in downtown Denver, to learn about sharing the gospel, uh, study together, worship together. It was a great team-building experience. That was, a, that was a blast. A few weeks ago, we had the chance to welcome Bob and Andrea Burnham, missions partner of, mission partners of ours from the Ukraine. And we got to hear just the incredible way that the kingdom of God is, is advancing in, in a really tough context, honestly. Kind of a lot of social turmoil, political turmoil, uh, there in Ukraine, however, just the incredible way that the church is flourishing there. We got to celebrate that. That was so exciting for us. If you were here last week, we got to celebrate as a church. Uh, two years were really worth of prayers uh, for a church planting apprentice. We got to welcome the Weston family, Brett and Aaron Weston, their five amazing kids. Uh, and if you were here, you actually got to hear Brett preach. We kind of threw him straight to the wolves right away. He said, hey, welcome. It's your first official Sunday. You're preaching. And he actually did a, he did a fantastic job. It was a wonderful sermon. If you weren't here, go and listen to it online. He did a tremendous job. We were so excited to get to celebrate that. So we have one more missions partner. I'm going to invite a Mr. Jim Dingus. Uh, Jim is a great friend of mine. He's been going here to Deer Creek for a little while. But we have one more uh, missions uh, highlight that we wanted to share with you this summer. So Jim, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, how long you and your family have been at Deer Creek? Oh, my wife and I have been here. We've been members, anyway, since 2012. Yeah, so my best friend, I'm going to embarrass you, sweetie, you raise your hand, <laughs> That's great, yeah, but Jim, great you just, oh, absolutely, I hear you, uh, Sheila's the same for us. So uh, you have a, a wonderful missions opportunity coming up, we're actually going to be partnering with Deer Creek uh, starting uh, here for this upcoming fall, and mm-hmm. so do you want to tell us a little bit about Lifelines? Yeah, love to, Lifelines is the outdoor ministry of Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, and actually the best way to understand how God uses Lifelines is to... Imagine a, uh, a teenager who doesn't know Jesus going off to school, going off to college as a freshman, maybe CU Boulder or some other secular school, and imagine the challenges they face going into you know, a full-bore, nonstop party scene, alcohol, drugs, sex, being away from their parents for the first time, uh, taking horrendous risks, most likely, and going into an academic environment that's usually openly hostile to Christianity. So uh, what Lifelines does is we're trying to, um, God uses Lifelines straight up to turn lost students into Christ-centered laborers for the kingdom. And that's what we do. Uh, We do a variety of outdoor programming, everything from day trips to weekend trips, spring break trips, summer long mission trips. And we're going to create gospel experiences using these outdoor uh, environments in God's wilderness in order to win build and send young people for Christ. And so we think what we're doing is, is not really something new. It's something ancient. It's a biblical hmm. model. God has always used wilderness environments to uh, transform lives. Uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, God's word teaches us that he uses wilderness to humble, test, and teach. And he still does. You know, our Lord spent 40 days in a wilderness before his outdoor ministry even began. Uh, and experiential education is one of the ways Jesus taught. He did most of his teaching in outdoor environments. And uh, what we do is get students, we remove barriers from transformation. We get them out of campus, out of their negative peer groups, 
get them unplugged, literally, in, in a wilderness environment, and give them healthy outlets for risk-taking, like rappelling off a cliff or whitewater rafting. It's very healthy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in a nutshell, um, you know, that's what we do. That's really exciting, Jim. I, could, I can just see your passion and your enthusiasm coming through. You're not a very excitable, passionate person. No, especially about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jim, is a, he, there's a joke on staff that whenever you're preaching up front and you're feeling a little discouraged, feel like people are falling asleep, which is pretty much every time I preach, you, like, you find Jim. Like, where's Jim? Because he's, I mean, he's, he's, uh, yeah. he's always there. He's very enthusiastic. Wow, I love that about you, Jim. I've always you're appreciated that. You're preaching today, right? I, I am preaching today, yeah! so I'm going to be... I'm gonna be <laughs> I also uh, I have him set up as my laugh track as well. It's going to be great. So, um, Jim, what, what are you... So, speaking of excitement, what are you most excited about diving into Lifelines? Oh, man. Just, you know, what I get most jazzed about, frankly, is um, we're blessed. And, you know, you've worked in youth ministry. The greatest blessing we get in ministry is when you're mm. present, when you get a, a ringside seat, or in my case, I guess, a you know, campfire side seat, uh, to watch God transform lives. Mm. And that's what I get jazzed about. Yeah. Can I tell you a a quick story? Uh, Please do. Yeah, Yeah, go for it. This is to give you a glimpse of of how God uses outdoor ministry. It's not just fun and games. Sometimes it's difficult. I had a student uh, named Colby, and he's allowed me to share his story. Colby uh, didn't know the Lord, went off to uh, his freshman year at Montana State, uh, got a 0.0 grade point average his first year, flunked out. He had a full-ride athletic scholarship, a gifted athlete, lost all that. He showed up on the trip, uh, a backpacking trip, first day in a pit of despair, Mm. just completely bummed out. Uh, After he got, he was actually hungover when he showed up. Uh, After he got over his his hangover, a couple days into his backpack trip, I shared the gospel, and uh, he accepted Christ, praise God. He went on to... uh, a discipleship training program. I got to mentor him for a couple of years. Uh, he served as a missionary overseas. Wow. And now he works for an outdoor ministry trying to intercept other young young men who are messing up in the party scene. God did that. Oh, man, so that's cool. You know, yeah, that's exciting. That, that's yeah. Lifeline yeah. that's awesome. I mean, that's discipleship. That's the full circle of discipleship. Yeah, disciples exactly. making disciples. That's beautiful, Jim. Amen. Yeah, so, so this is exciting. We're excited for you. How can we as a church uh, support you and your family personally, uh, professionally? How can we partner with you guys and, have be, and be praying for you? Yeah, one is prayer. Prayer is the work of missions. I can't do anything without, without prayer. Uh, also, um, I can't report to my ministry assignment at Lifelines until I've raised my salary and all my ministry expenses for the coming year. So I'd love a chance to hang out with you guys. Anybody that's interested, have a cup of coffee, hoist a pint, share a meal. I'd love to tell you more about uh, Lifelines, my calling to this ministry, and, and how you can support uh, this ministry with monthly giving or prayer. That's great. Jim, can we pray for you right now? Yeah. All right, let's do that. <laughs> God, thank you so much for my brother, Jim. Lord, thank you for the encourager that he is, Lord, the enthusiasm he has. Uh, for, for the outdoor ministry, God, most of all for you. Lord, that, it humbles me, it encourages me to no end to see you, you taking your children, Lord, this, this son that you have called to yourself and taking the passions you've given him, the excitement you've given him, the calling that you've given him, Lord, and sending him on mission. Lord, I pray that we as a church would come alongside the Dinges family. Uh, Lord, we would love Jim and Teresa so well. Lord, we would be fervently praying 
uh, praying for them and supporting them and loving them in this next ministry season. Lord, I also pray for, for myself and the, our congregation, Lord, that we would live a missional life, God, mm-hmm. that we would see that we are, on Sundays we're the gathered church, but every six other days of the week, Lord, we are the scattered church. We are scattered around the world to be on mission, representing Jesus everywhere we go and everything we do. So, Lord, thank you for these opportunities to highlight these ministry relationships we have. Um, Lord, go before Jim. Bless him and keep him. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 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 Thanks, Jim. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dustin. Dustin's the heavy lifter on staff. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. (laughs) Well, uh, again, if I didn't mention before, again, my name is Joseph. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek. Dwayne Corey, our senior pastor, is on sabbatical. Uh, He's been on sabbatical all summer long, traveling, researching, studying, kind of gearing up for this next ministry season. Uh, He will be joining us again in September. I know he's really excited to be back. We're really excited to have him back. In the meantime, though, you're stuck with me. I'm sorry. No, in the meantime, (laughs) thank you. Pity woo. Uh, Yeah, no, in the meantime, we're going to be going through a little little short series for the rest of August titled The River, the Desert, the Mission. That's kind of an odd title for a series, but what we're going to be doing together is looking at the very, kind of the days leading up to and then the very earliest of days of Jesus' public ministry. This, this three-year time period from age 30 to 33, where Jesus did all the things that we kind of know him for. He, he preached, and he taught, and he healed. He uh, performed miracles. He, he did all these, other, uh, these incredible things. He cast out demons. He pushed back darkness. But not only that, he raised up disciples. He empowered his followers to go and do likewise. And so we're going to be looking at some of the key foundational events that led up to and kind of into this public ministry of Jesus. Now, whether you've grown up in the church or this is your first Sunday in church ever, if so, welcome. We're so happy to have you here with us. Or maybe it's your first Sunday in church in a long time. No matter kind of where you fall on the faith spectrum, it's pretty hard to argue with the idea that those three years of Jesus' ministry have shaped human history. And so we're going to be hopefully out of this drawing core principles. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is, but this is who we are in light of those things. So I'm going to pray for us one more time, and we're going to dive in. We're going to start in a place called the river, looking at Matthew chapter 3. Sound good? Let me pray for us. God, you are so good. Your grace is what has led us here this morning. Lord, your grace gives us this opportunity to study your word together. Lord, I, I confess that I come here feeling a little tired feeling a little anxious about many things. Lord, I I know that many of us have gathered here feeling distracted or anxious or worn down. Lord, we we surrender those things to you now. Lord, take our distractions, take our anxieties, take our fears and our concerns. You are good. You are holy. You are loving. So God, we give those things to you. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come now, Lord, that it would work in our hearts to prepare us to receive your word. God, be our teacher this morning. Reveal to us more and more who you are and more and more who we are in light of of you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, over the last few years, I've had the opportunity, and it really has been a, it's been a blessing to work with many of our high school and college-age students as they're, as they're starting out, uh, whether graduating high school, graduating college, and they're starting out, they're looking for their first job or first full-time job. And students always ask me for a couple things. Uh, number one, they'll ask me for references. I, I get a lot of reference requests. I, I love doing references. My, my wife tells me I have the, the spiritual gift of referencing. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Um, she also, though, she, I don't know how to take this either. She always tells me, Joseph, you're really good at making other people look better. 
Like, that's like a 50% compliment. That's like half a compliment, like half an insult. But I'll take, I'll take anything I can get. So I get asked to do a lot of references. I love doing those. The other thing that I get asked to do that I absolutely love to do is I get asked to look at students' resumes with them. You want to know why I love looking at students' resumes? They're terrible. <laughs> Guys, they're awful. Students' resumes, and I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not picking on our students or anything like that. But let's, let's be honest. Every single one of us, when we're starting out, when we're graduating high school, graduating even college, you know, we're, we're trying to get a job, none of us have the most impressive resumes in the world, right? We, we're, we're digging down deep to try to find anything that we can do to, to fill up that page. Right? I mean, uh, I can use Microsoft Word. Is that, okay, well, sure, put it on there. I can make coffee, sort of, most of the time. All right, put it on there. I still have 80% of the page to go. I don't know what else I can do. I don't know what else I've done. It's not that impressive. None of us have super impressive resumes. So I always tell our students, it's better to shoot for thoughtful than impressive, kind of right out the gate, because um, there's a lot of uh, unimpressive and unthoughtful resumes floating around out there. In fact, you, if, you're, if you've ever been an employer, you've probably had a few unthoughtful, unimpressive resumes come across your desk. Uh, it's a very short Google search to find some really bad resumes out there. I have a few of my personal favorites behind me. Uh, the first one is this. This is under educational experiences, and the individual listed this. I applied to Harvard. It's not as impressive when you really think about it. Did you go there? No. <laughs> Didn't even come close, but I applied. <laughs> this next one is a good one. Uh, under the references section, this person uh, lists off the references as per usual, but they said, none of my references like me, so please don't believe what they say. <laughs> it's worth a shot, I guess. <laughs> it's a nice little disclaimer. Uh, one person had grocery store experience in the past, and this is why spell checking and, uh, is really important. <laughs> Worked as a bagger and night stalker. <laughs> Autocorrect is not your friend on your resume. Not at all. This last one's my personal favorite. This is a gal who's applying to work at a daycare center. She had experience uh, that she had organized and supervised snake time for children of all ages. Probably meant snack. Snack probably didn't get the job. <laughs> There's a lot of unthoughtful, unimpressive resumes out there. And, uh, you know, that's the thing about resumes. Is re resumes are all about trying to prove how qualified we are, which is important. Qualifications are important. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you don't want someone doing heart surgery on you just because they played the, the board game Operation a lot growing up. That's not a valid qualification. Uh, the problem with resumes, though, and I think this is true for all of us, whether we're starting out, whether we've been in the world for a while, uh, is that we all know they aren't true. At least they're, they're not the full truth, right? Resumes are the moment we all become salespeople. Salesmen, saleswomen, we are all trying to present the best version of ourselves, the most qualified, the most polished versions of who we are. And we know in our heart of hearts, if we really think about our resumes, if we really think about what we're representing, this version of ourselves, uh, if we're completely honest with ourselves, that even the most impressive of resumes, even the longest list of qualifications doesn't give the full picture. Uh, but there's good news for all us unqualified people, uh, us unimpressive people. And I always tell students, the good news is, and I, and I genuinely mean this, the good news is God delights in using the unimpressive, the unproven, the unqualified to do great things. God takes tremendous delight in doing that. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 3, and as weird as it sounds, we're going to look a little bit about uh, Jesus' resume starting out in ministry. And we're going to draw from this, I think, some core principles, the way that we will see that God highlights relationship 
over performance. So if you have a Bible with you, go and turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to go through this, this whole chapter here together. It'll only take an hour and a half or so. It should be good. Um, we're going to start with someone that's not Jesus. Is he joking? I don't know. We're going to start with someone that's not Jesus. We're going to start with Jesus, a family member of Jesus, actually, uh, who is on the scene here, uh, John the Baptist. This is Jesus' second cousin. Now, John the Baptist is a, is a very important figure in Scripture. We've actually uh, learned more about him in other passages of Scripture, uh, specifically Luke chapter 1. We see the circumstances surrounding his birth. And John the Baptist had a very important job of preparing the way for the Messiah. We see this in verses 1 through 3 here. You can read along. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This is a huge deal. Just so, just so we're clear. All right, so John the Baptist is here. He's preparing the way for the Lord. He's, he's getting ready to point the way towards the Messiah. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But this is the first prophet. This is the first kind of mouthpiece of God that has been on the scene in the nation of Israel for 400 years. And he has a very specific role, preparing the way for the Messiah. And he's doing that through a call to repentance. He's calling the people of God. He's calling the nation of Israel to come together to repent. It's just a fancy, it's a church word, but it means to turn towards God to turn towards God, to have a change in mind, a change in heart, uh, to be changed and replaced by God's will in a pursuit of him. John was an interesting figure, to say the least. He was also a really polarizing figure. We continue reading here, uh, verses 4 through 6. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, interesting choice, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him, thus the name John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. Camel hair, eating locusts, honey. John was a real granola kind of guy. All right? This is an interesting figure. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people are coming to him in the middle of nowhere. They're not exactly in a super populated area. In the middle of nowhere, from the whole region, the passage tells us, people are wondering, is this the Messiah? Some people are genuinely contrite, say, I, I want repentance, I want to be baptized, I want to be forgiven of my sins, they're coming in for that. Some people are just curious, this is the first prophet that we've heard of or seen in 400 years, what, what's going on, we want to understand this. Some people, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, the kind of religious leaders of the day, they come, they want to, uh, what, what's this guy's qualifications, who does he think he is, what's he teaching these people? They want to critique, they want to criticize, they want to dialogue with him. John makes it clear, though, that he's not the Messiah. He's a signpost. He's, he's getting ready. He's pointing the people towards the coming Messiah. We read along. We jump ahead a little bit. <clears throat> this is uh, verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance. This is a really common practice uh, in the biblical era. And also just throughout numerous religions throughout human history, the baptism is a symbol of purification. It's a symbol of making things right, making things new. I baptize with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I. And people start leaning in a little bit. This is what he's preaching to people. That, oh, someone more powerful than you? You're, you're a prophet. You're the first prophet in 400 years. Someone with better qualifications than you is coming along? Someone whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. And people are oh, leaning in a little bit more. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And people are on the edge of their seats. 
Who is this Messiah that you're talking about? Who is this person who's going to come? He's going to have this, this thing called the Holy Spirit. He's going to purge the nation with fire. He's going to make things right. He's going to clean up all this mess and all the brokenness and all that's wrong with the world. Everyone's leaning in. They're excited. They're, they're, they're anxious to see who in the world he's talking about. This is someone that John the Baptist isn't even worried to carry his, worthy to, to carry his sandals. That's a slave's job. That's like the lowest of the low. John, you're a prophet. You're qualified. You have thousands of people flocking to you, listening to you, dialoguing. You have some of the best religious leaders in the day coming to you, and you're not worthy to carry his sandals to do a slave's job? This is a huge deal. Who is this person? In fact, if we were, if we were to modernize, kind of to put this in a modern context, what does it mean to, to have a, almost like a wanted poster or a wanted ad for the Messiah versus this kind of visionary figure that John's describing? It, w- it would read something a little bit like this. Wanted. Powerful visionary leader of nonprofit organization. Must be expert recruiter, master teacher, skilled people person. Must be willing and able to be on feet for extended periods of time and be able to carry heavy burdens. Areas of expertise must include fishing, agriculture, including vineyards, public speaking, philosophy, bridge building, medical rehabilitation, and livestock management. Must have character above reproach. And be willing to make extraordinary sacrifices. That's a huge list. That's a huge list of qualifications to be the Messiah. Now, I'm kind of poking fun at it here, but you get the idea, right? If you're in John's audience and you're hearing this prophet, the first prophet in 400 years, pointing towards someone great, someone who's on their way, you're thinking of the most qualified, the most impressive superstars that might actually qualify, might actually be worthy of such a title. You're thinking of religious leaders, you're thinking of political masterminds, maybe military commanders, the superstars of that day and age. And in our context, we think of our own qualified individuals and what they would need to have on their resumes to qualify for that, right? To deserve such a job description. These are our heroes, they're celebrities, politicians, uh, maybe athletes, scientists, scholars. And we're, we're modern 21st century North Americans. We think of ourselves as pretty accomplished people. So this has to be someone that by comparison, just we don't even uh, measure up to. It's not even close. You know, I'm decent, but I'm no, you can fill in the blank there. I, I had a moment, uh, a fun comparison moment with Michael Phelps the other night. Um, have you guys, uh, have you heard of Michael Phelps ever? Yeah, he's a decent swimmer. Yeah, he's that guy. <laughs> On Tuesday night, this is for me. So Tuesday night, Michael Phelps won two gold medals in one hour. And I read about that on Wednesday morning, which made me reflect, what did I do on Tuesday night? <laughs> As I thought about it, I vaguely recollected that I had fallen asleep on the couch at 7 p.m. watching Star Wars, forgetting to change the laundry over, and the sink was full of dirty dishes. Not that impressive. And, and by the way, my wife and I just had a baby. That's like the, probably the most productive night I've had in like a long time, in like a month. Not that impressive. But by comparison, Michael Phelps has, more, has won more than twice as many gold medals as any other Olympian. Okay, that's all right. That's, he's won more gold medals than many entire nations. Since the modern Olympics began in 1896, it, it kind of depends on how you count it because nation states move and change. Something like 100 countries have taken home fewer gold medals than Michael Phelps. If, if he was his own country, if he was the, the Republic of Phelps, is where the article I read this morning, if he was the Republic of Phelps, he would rank 31st nationally all time in medal count. That's insane. We can't even remotely begin to compare to that. 
That's the kind of qualified person we're looking for. Someone who blows the rest of us out of the water. Someone that impresses us. Qualifications, medals, accomplishments. That's what we're looking for. That must be who John the Baptist is talking about. That's who John the Baptist is pointing to, who he's revealing to them. All right, John, show us the Messiah. Where is he? Who's this super qualified individual that you're pointing us towards? And I love how the passage continues. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Then Jesus came from Galilee. We can just pause right there. No titles, no accomplishments. Jesus shows up, even where he's from, Jesus showing up from Galilee is like saying Jesus came from South Carolina. Right? I mean, you might like know someone from South Carolina. Maybe you've been there. You're probably not going to admit that. You're probably not, that's probably not your lead talking point. I'm, I'm from North Carolina, so we pick on South Carolina. But you get the idea. This is... This is <sighs> So probably you guys, I don't know, Texas maybe? I don't know, I don't, insert, the, yeah, insert your state here. But you may know someone there. Maybe you've been there, but you're not going to lead with that. That's not your leading qualification for anything. <laughs> you've heard of the place, but you'd really rather not admit it. Galilee wasn't exactly the most happening of social hubs. It was this backwater region. It had this reputation of just honestly being a dangerous, uncivilized place. Lots of radicals, lots of revolutionaries, lots of crime. Nothing good kind of comes from Galilee, comes from that region. Nathaniel, actually, who would become one of Jesus' first disciples, uh, later on in, a, in another book of the Bible, John chapter 1, when, when his friends come to him and say, Nathaniel, Nathaniel we, we, we found the Messiah, we found the one. His response is, oh, who is it? Oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth, which is a part of Galilee. And Galilee? Nazareth? Nothing good could come from there. You guys are mistaken. You're messed up. Like, that's his response. That's people's response. So when Scripture tells us, then Jesus came from, now, from Galilee, no accolades, no qualifications other than that. It, oh, that's interesting. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Even less impressive, here comes Jesus to be baptized. He's just one of the common people. But John tried to deter him. So John and him have this interesting interaction. John tried to deter Jesus, tried to say, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. John instantly shows deference, instantly recognizes who Jesus is. And John tries to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know who you are. I ought to be baptized by you. Uh, you shouldn't, I, I ought to be baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly if this is a private conversation or a public one. It doesn't list you know, who was listening in, but given the location, just there out in the wilderness, there's not exactly a lot of private space out by the Jordan River. Given the huge crowds, hundreds if not thousands of people that are gathered there, and also given the fact that John was, uh, was a prophet, he had his own disciples at this point, Scripture tells us in other places, this almost certainly wasn't a private conversation. It's almost certain that other people are listening in, and then Jesus of Galilee shows up, and John immediately shows him deference, respect, uh, pointing to him as a great and worthy person of praise. And everyone else is confused. What, they, what does John see in this guy? Why is he giving him so much? John, you're the first prophet in 400 years. Who is this guy? Do, what, do we even know anything about him? Why would you think so highly of him? All right, we, guys, we need to check on this guy's credentials. We need to, right, Jesus of Nazareth, anyone from that region, they're talking with each other. Has anyone heard of him? I don't know. I, I have a cousin from that area. They were born around the same time. I think he's around 30 years old. He's 30? He's not, he's not married doesn't have any kids. Yeah, I heard he lives with his mom still. <laughs> Man, talk about failure to launch. Oh. Does he have a, well, maybe, okay, maybe, maybe he's a scholar. Maybe, maybe that's his specialty. You know, does he have any official degree, training, any serious education? 
No, I, I heard from my brother that he's worked as a manual laborer his whole life. Yeah, well, I heard that the guy who raised him isn't even his real dad. I mean, that, those are the kind of things being whispered about Jesus when he shows up on the scene. You get the idea. This isn't the most impressive of resumes to be submitting for job of savior of the world. And there's, there's a reason I'm spending so much time kind of building this up and setting up Jesus' lack of qualifications because we're, we're coming up at a critical moment in this passage. There's a moment when all of a sudden we learn something truly remarkable, something truly praiseworthy, something truly astonishing about who God is. And in my opinion, it's a moment that challenges everything about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. It's a moment, in my opinion, that sets Christianity apart from every single other religion, philosophy, idealized worldview that's out there. It's a moment that will change your life if you really marinate with it, if you really let it soak into your soul, because it's absolutely changed mine. You ready for this? Okay. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. We'll come back to that. He's pointing this is something big is about to happen. To fulfill all righteousness, something huge is about to take place. So John consents to baptize him. We read in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, resting on him. And a voice from heaven said this, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Let me read that last part again. This is my son, and I love him, and I'm proud of him. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see the blessing of the train. We see Father, Son, Holy Spirit filling up this river, filling up this moment in time. Here in the middle of the Jordan River, we see the ultimate endorsement that God can give. The ultimate communication of Jesus' identity. His relationship with his father, the father's joy in his relationship with his son. Let me ask you some questions. What has Jesus done to deserve this? We say, well, he's the perfect son of God. What has he demonstrated? What qualifications does he have to deserve these words that God gives him in the river? How many miracles has Jesus performed up to this point? Zero. How many people has Jesus healed at this point? Zero. How many followers does Jesus have at this point? Zero. How many sermons has he preached? How many churches has he started? How many nonprofits are named after him or dedicated to his life and his service? Zero. What has he done to deserve or perform for this identity that he's been given? Guys, he's done nothing. He's done absolutely nothing. But how much of the Father's relationship, how much of the Father's love, how much of the Father's joy does he have? He has everything. He has everything. God values relationship over performance. I was, a, I was a baseball player growing up. Any, any, anyone, former baseball player, current baseball player? Okay, a few of us. My dad was always one of my coaches. Anyone else have that experience? The parent was like your coach some of the time, part of the time. Anyone? Okay, a few of you. Uh, that can always go one of two ways, right? That can always be a really good thing, a really bad thing. I actually loved having my dad as one of my coaches. It was really a, a great experience. He, he did a really good job. He didn't, uh, he didn't single me out. He didn't give me special treatment, but he didn't you know, overly cr- criticize me either. He actually kept a really healthy balance. really enjoyed having him as one of my coaches. 
uh, one year we were in a regional tournament, regional playoff. We were trying to go to the state championship playing baseball. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And we were in a really close game against a really good team. It was, the, it was the bottom of the last inning, and there were two outs. How many outs do you get in baseball? You get three, just to make sure everyone's following. Uh, so you get three outs. So it's the very last inning. There's already two outs, and I'm up to bat. I come up to bat, and uh, we're down one nothing. very last inning. And it's, it's all up to me. I'm, I'm, the, I'm it. Like, it's me or we go home. I have to get on base. I have to hit a home run. I have to do something to contribute. I have to do something to perform, and if I don't, we're out, we lose, we go home. My dad's the third base coach at this time, so he's down there and he's doing kind of the whole baseball coach thing. He's doing all the sim- signals. I don't remember half of them, so I'm just looking at him. But this pitcher I'm facing, I remember him. And he was a fireballer. I mean, this guy had a cannon for an arm. I'm 11, 12 years old. It feels like he's throwing like 111 miles an hour. It feels like I'm up against Nolan Ryan. So the first pitch comes in, swing, like four seconds late. I don't, I'm not even close. Not even close to making contact. Strike one. Next pitch, nowhere close. Strike two. How many strikes do you get in baseball? Three. Okay, yeah, you're with me. I have one strike left. It is now or never. And my dad's looking down from the third base uh, coaching box, and he sees I'm getting frustrated, and he calls a timeout. And he calls me over to him. So I'm frustrated. I'm a typical preteen. I'm kicking dirt, and I'm mad, and I'm frustrated. I feel all this pressure. And I'm like, Dad, what do you want? What do you want? Like, are you going to give me a scouting report? Well, hey, Joseph, watch out. This guy throws really hard. Oh, thanks. I hadn't seen that already. Like, okay, I appreciate it. What, what in the world would he have to tell me at a moment like this? Doesn't he know the pressure I'm under? Doesn't he know that I have to perform? And I'll never forget what my dad said to me. He came up to me, put his hand on the middle of my back, and he leaned in and he said, Joseph, I want you to know something. If you hit a home run right now, I'm going to buy you a milkshake after this game. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> bribery. Okay, all right, you surprised me, Dad. I did not expect bribery. Interesting coaching strategy. <laughs> but I truly will never forget the next thing he said. My dad leaned in, and he put his arm around me, and he said, and Joseph, I want you to know that if you strike out right now, I'm going to buy you a milkshake after this game. That was it. Timeout's over. He sends me back to the box. I'm, I'm walking back, and I'm like thinking about milkshakes now. And I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And as I'm getting close to the, to, the, to, the, to the batter's box, and I'm getting ready to face on this pitcher, all of a sudden it occurred to me that in that moment, my dad chose relationship over performance. In that moment, my dad prioritized his relationship with me over anything that I could do in that next moment facing down this pitcher. And I was free. I was 100% free. The anxiety left me, the fear left me, all the concern left me. And all of a sudden I realized it doesn't really matter if I perform here or not. I'm going to go get a milkshake for my dad after this game. And so I sat in and I got in the batter's box. I'm feeling a lot more relaxed, a lot more confident. I'm not making this up. I stare down the opposing pitcher and he throws a pitch right down the middle. And I turn and I put everything I have in the swing. I crank on this pitch as hard as I can. Strike three. Struck out, lost the game, we went home. You know what I did with my dad after that game? I went and got a milkshake. I went and got a milkshake. I've hit home runs. I've pitched no hitters. I played a ton of baseball growing up. I I vaguely recall those experiences. Never forget getting that milkshake with my dad. Strawberry banana. Still remember. (laughs) I will never forget that milkshake. It's my dad chose relationship over performance. 
That is the God we worship. God chooses relationship over performance every single time. That's the God he was. That's the God he is. That's the God he will always be. And let's not be mistaken. Jesus was the sinless son of God, the eternal Messiah to whom we alone can look for salvation. He has all the qualifications in the world, but next to nothing of those qualifications had been revealed in that moment in the river. Nothing had been demonstrated. Nothing had been proven. Nothing needed to be proven or demonstrated or earned in the river. It didn't matter to God one bit. God doesn't delay in wholeheartedly endorsing him, saying, you are my child and I love you and I'm proud of you. That's the message that he speaks to Jesus in the river. And what God said to Jesus in the river is true of every single one of us every single day when we are in Christ. In Christ. That phrase appears 83 times throughout the New Testament. It's a huge, theologically rich phrase. What does it mean to be in Christ? We could talk about that for months and months and months. We could study that for a lifetime, and that would be a worthwhile study. But being in Christ, being united with who Christ is, this is why in Matthew 28 it talks about us being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why our own baptism is described in Romans 6 as being baptized into Jesus Christ. This is our identity with the Father for all eternity when we trust and follow Jesus and Jesus alone. Guys, this is the good news. This is why we call it gospel good news. And all the lies about performance and all those false gospels of earning God's love just start to melt away when we sit in the river with Jesus. You can't earn what you already have and what's already been promised to us and delivered to us in Jesus. Do you think going to church will earn God's love? It won't. Do you, do you think the act of baptism earns God's love? It won't. Do you think memorizing a ton of scripture earns God's love? It doesn't. Doing good things, uh, giving money to the poor, serving the home, does that earn us God's love? It doesn't. What about, all right, what about just practical stuff? Uh, you know, what about having a big home and a huge savings account and a healthy family and a, a nice car? Uh, does that earn us God's love? It doesn't. It never will. We don't earn God's love that way. Having a killer resume will not earn God's love. We've got to accept that. That's a false gospel. That's not true. Being a child of God, though, one that he loves, one that he's well-pleased with, isn't earned. It's freely given in Christ and only in Christ. Just like at the end of the day when you're looking for a job, it isn't always about the qualifications and accomplishments. It's about who you know. Being a follower of Jesus isn't about what you can do. Being a follower of Jesus is about who you know. Do you know Jesus? Are you in Christ? Many of us have spent our whole lives in church or around church or working for the church trying to earn God's love. You've been in the church, but you've never stood in the river with Jesus. That's where we find our identity. That's the only place we can find our identity with God. To close up, I just want, I just want to give us a simple set of reminders about what, it, what does it mean for us to be in Christ? Scripture is always referring to it. We're, we're God's children as a people saved not by our performance but because of this relationship. So here we go. In Christ, God says this to you, to every single one of you when you are in Christ. You are his child. Hear that. You are his child. Galatians 4 tells us that in Christ, we're not slaves. 
We're, we're not even servants. We are heirs. We are heirs to God's kingdom. We are princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. We are God's children. We have all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that come with that. We don't have to walk around with our heads uh, hanging low, ashamed by our past, or crippled by the, the risk of future failures. In Christ, we are eternal sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is good news. That is the gospel. In Christ, you are his child. You are his son. You are his daughter. In Christ, God says he loves you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Romans 8, 38 and 39 is a familiar passage. For I am convinced that neither life Excuse me, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love isn't conditioned on our performance or, or our lack thereof. Like it's, it's not conditioned on what we do or what we earn. I thank God for that every single day. Because I don't have the most productive days all the time. I don't always perform super well. But our identity is rooted in his eternal relationship with the Son and the Spirit. Since before we were born, before the foundations of the world, if you think your temper or your addiction or your arrogance or your lust or, or anything is going to separate you from God's love, from the fact that your Father loves you, you haven't been listening. You are his child, you are his son, you are his daughter, and he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. In Christ, God says he is proud of you. And many of us are, what does that even mean? God is proud of us. He's well pleased with us. Zephaniah 3.17, it's a book of the Bible, I promise, tells us, that, uh, tells us this. It's really a beautiful passage. The Lord will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. My wife and I just had our, our, our first child, a little girl named Marin. Um, I rejoice over Marin. You want to know what she does? She cries. <laughs> and she makes huge messes. And she makes mommy and daddy really tired. And I, I can't even put it into words, but I rejoice over her. I am so proud of her. And she'll be sitting there across the room, and, and we're, we're talking, we're listening, we're holding her. And, oh, look at her. Do you see what she's doing? She's not doing anything. <laughs> she's not doing She's just sitting there. But we're so proud of you, Marin. We're so proud of you. Why? I don't know. She's my child, and I love her, and I'm just proud of her because that's who she is, and that's who, how I feel as her father. In Christ, God says, you're his child. He loves you. He's proud of you. This week, parents, hold to that truth. If you're about to lose your temper, you already lost your temper, whatever, um, in Christ, this is true of you. You don't have to perform. You don't have to put on a show. Employees, maybe you lost the account or you lost your job and you're wondering, how in the world am I going to perform? How am I going to take care of my family? In Christ, God loves you. You're his child. He's proud of you. Students, maybe school's coming up. You fail the test. You feel like you, you have an argument with your friend. You're going through a breakup. In Christ, you are God's child. And he loves you and he's proud of you. What if we as a church believed this? What if we looked at the world and we said, come as you are just like we did. No qualifications, no applications, no deserving. Come exactly as you are with your brokenness, your mess, your failures, your flaws. World, come as you are and stand in the river with Jesus. Meet the risen Son of God and don't leave how you came. Come as you are, but don't leave how you came because that's what happens when we stand in the river with Jesus. It changes us. It changes us.
This week, focus all your heart, soul, and mind on who you are in the river with Jesus. You are your daddy's child. Your daddy loves you. Guys, your daddy, he's proud of you when you're in Christ. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word, that in Christ you love us, you're proud of us, that we get to call you daddy, that we get to call you our father in heaven. Lord, thank you that when you taught your disciples how to pray, you started us with a phrase saying, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, we call out to you as your children now. Lord, even when we make a mess, even when we don't perform, even if we feel like we've never performed or never had any qualifications to deserve it, Lord, thank you that in Christ we are your children and you love us and you're proud of us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.